Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight. Uh, I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm on the Board of Governors for the Commonwealth Club, and uh, my company, Relevant Wealth, is one of the sponsors for Marine Conversations. Thank you all for coming and sponsoring this event by buying tickets and making these very special events possible right here in Marin. So thank you for that. We have a really special event tonight, and it's far more interesting than any debates or virus updates or, you know, what else? The stock market is crashing. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. We have great content tonight with David Mizell, and he has a new book. So I'm going to promote his book because, you know, he's very polite. We're super lucky to have Virginia here tonight uh, from Los Angeles to, to lead the conversation and, and kind of take us through this visual experience that David's going to launch. So I'm going to hand it over to David. He's going to talk about some of the images, and then I think the two of you are going to sit down and continue the conversation. So thank you all for coming. Hope to see you again soon. All right. Wow. Thanks for that introduction. And um, thanks to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this conversation. A special thanks to Virginia Heckert, who I'm so delighted to be speaking with tonight, and to all of you for coming out to look and to listen. Um, so tonight we're going to focus for the most part on work I've been making at Dugway Proving Ground. Uh, it's a massive military installation in the Great Salt Lake Desert where chemical and biological weapons and defense systems are tested and developed. Uh, so first we're going to touch on some early projects that lead up to Proving Ground that give you a sense of my concerns and my focus. And I'm going to move pretty fast because... Um, the real meat of this evening is going to be Virginia and I talking with each other. But for more than three decades now, I've been making photographs that consider how the natural world is transformed through processes of industrialization, geoengineering, and militarization. I've been pursuing these interlinked themes of development and destruction of the environment, particularly that of the American West. And I'm interested in making an art of the actual that renders the realities of a flawed and complex world. So here, for example, we're seeing a highly toxic tailings pond on the periphery of an open pit mine in Butte, Montana. The series as a whole is titled Black Maps, which comes from a rather chilling poem by Mark Strand, which reads in part, nothing will tell you where you are. Each moment is a place you've never been. And that suggests a kind of existential dread in a way that I'm after with these images. They, they aren't meant as pure cartographic documents. I don't really trust that idea uh, for photography to sort of bear that weight. But I do hope that they serve to bear witness to the environmental catastrophes that we humans enact on the earth. So there is a kind of intrinsic activism going on. So the chapters in Black Maps collectively show the American West and other territories as the sites of human-induced trauma, including zones of open-pit mining, such as this copper and gold mine on the Carlin Trend in Nevada, and water reclamation sites, for example. Uh, this is Owens Lake on the eastern flanks of the Sierras here in California, which was drained and diverted to bring water to Los Angeles, becoming an epic environmental disaster in the process. So as you can probably tell, I often work from an aerial vantage point, and the resulting images encompass both documentary and aesthetic perspectives in equal measure. I don't really identify as an aerial photographer per se, um, but it's a method that allows me to see these and make these kind of horizonless, often scaleless and abstracted images of environmental catastrophe. The aerial view offers a fresh perspective, and in doing so, it challenges our spatial sensibilities, our grasp of relationships. It permits a gathering of photographic imagery and a kind of graphic intensity that interests me. I could work with drones at this point or perhaps download high-res files from Google Earth, but I find it essential for me to occupy these sites physically, bodily, to put myself in their midst and to witness. So I collaborate closely with pilots shooting from a Cessna or at times a helicopter, essentially choreographing our flights. I don't mount the camera in the belly of the aircraft, which would, which would result in a more objective view, more cartographic view, a purer view. Rather, I'm hand-holding a medium-format film-based camera and making images as I'm having the pilot bank the plane, the aircraft, steeply. So I've been working along these lines for, as I said, about three and a half decades now. 
and my sense of urgency is increasing with each passing year and each project. The feeling that time and space are running out and that we're increasingly in the grip of forces triggered by human actions but exceeding human control. Photography for me is a way of investigating the invisible or the unknown. The environments that I'm working with are generally kind of secret or hidden sites. They're not places that we, we generally occupy or, or understand. So this image, for example, you know, to me it has a sense of being almost like a Francis Bacon painting, a kind of raw wound on the earth. It's actually depicting wastewater ditches on the western edge of the Great Salt Lake, which are contaminated with dioxin at levels as high as 170 parts per billion. And just to give you a sense of scale with that, EPA action levels for cleanup are supposed to begin at one part per billion. In 2018, with the support of a Guggenheim Fellowship, I began my most current project, Desolation Desert. Uh, here I'm examining the vast territory of Chile's Atacama Desert, looking specifically at sites of lithium extraction and copper mining. Uh, this work will be on view at Haynes Gallery in San Francisco in an exhibit opening April 16th. So here and in the following images, we're looking at a series of massive interlinked tailings ponds on the periphery of the Minera Centinella copper mine. Tailings ponds are the wastewater ponds of the mine uh, and typically are highly poisoned with heavy metals. The Atacama, you may know, is the highest and driest and most environmentally fragile desert on the planet. It's hugely expansive, 41,000 square miles. It's about a quarter the size of California and most of it is remote in the extreme. But these toxic ponds reminded me, when viewing them from the air, of the series of epic abstract expressionist paintings by Robert Motherwell, Elegy to the Spanish Republic, a collective title for a series of over 100 paintings that he intended as a lamentation, a lamentation or funeral song. And I'm reminded of the ways in which these sites are sacrificial landscapes, and I'm forced to recognize the extent to which all of my work is concerned with making elegies for such sites. Okay, now let's go back in time a bit to the genesis of the Proving Ground project. In 2003, I began Terminal Mirage, a long-term project looking at the site of the Great Salt Lake and its periphery. It was inspired by the fact that Robert Smithson's seminal earthwork sculpture, the spiral jetty seen here, was reappearing after having been submerged below the waters of the Great Salt Lake for more than a decade. And here, uh, really the most critical image from this series and what leads us to Proving Ground, what looks at first perhaps like a Donald Judd or Michael Heiser installation or maybe a new suburban housing development on the desert floor is in fact the Tooele Army Depot. It's 25 miles southwest of Salt Lake City. It's an ammunition storage facility that at the time I made this photograph in 2003, was home to 42% of the nation's expired chemical weapons. At the time I made this image, there were nearly 30 million pounds of aging mustard and nerve agents such as sarin and tabin stored in hundreds of igloos, these little buildings, at the facility, awaiting disposal by incineration, which then sent contaminated ash over the waters of the lake and nearby towns. So, deep breath, right? Um, well, learning about the transformation of this landscape into a repository for toxic weaponry triggered many questions for me. And those questions like, where do these chemical weapons come from and how does space become militarized um, led me to research Dugway Proving Ground, this vast military complex located about 45 miles to the southwest of Tooele. So now we'll start looking at images from Dugway. Since its inception in 1942, Dugway's been devoted to the development and testing of chemical and biological weapons and defense programs. Its isolated setting in Utah's Great Salt Lake Desert, along with its scale of some 800,000 acres, making it larger than the state of Rhode Island, make it particularly suited to working with virulent substances like anthrax and sarin and plague, etc. Um, parts of Dugway are used to um, simulate uh, the terrain of, excuse me, of Afghanistan for um, troop practices. But in spite of its massive size, Dugway remains nearly invisible. Not only is it located by necessity in an extremely remote area, but it's actually rarely discussed in the media, and it's almost entirely closed to civilian visitors. So despite these obstacles to access, or actually maybe because of them, because this is how I work, <laughs> uh, I became captivated by the idea of making photographs there. And gaining access to Dugway took nearly a decade. 
Um, and I think Virginia and I will discuss that a, a little bit further. But so every site I've been permitted to photograph at Dugway has been highly vetted by layers of military personnel, and I'm accompanied at all times by at least one, if not two or three military representatives. But I've also been granted an extraordinary degree of access to work in zones that are otherwise restricted from civilian view. So this, this enigmatic structure that I'm showing you from different angles is um, it's called the Air Force Targeting Grid Building, and um, I became kind of obsessed with it for lots of different reasons. Uh, eventually, I learned that it's designed to be seen from above, from an aerial perspective, by, by actually it and its shadow, uh, uh, but to be seen by Air Force pilots as they make their way over Dugway in fighter jets at extremely high speed. So um, basically, the building and its shadow serve as a marker set into the vast desert landscape. And as this project developed, um, certain things came, became clear to me that, that, that I hadn't understood or intended from, from the beginning. Um, it, was, it was an investigation into not just what happens at Dugway, but also into some of the basic structural elements of photography as a medium. Abstraction, seriality, sequence, gridding, framing, the building up of related components, interlinked formal devices of modernism that are rather strangely central to the process of transforming both terrain and built structure at Dugway into measuring devices for weaponry systems and testing. I was also able to work from an aerial perspective, um, and uh, here we're seeing um, some of these uh, colossal weapons testing sites that are carved into the land, these kind of nested circles, cross-tatched grids. Um, I made the decision to to grid each aerial image into nine parts, a three-by-three three grid. And so I have this overlay of the, the rectilinear grid that suggests a cartographic urge for order and clarity and objectivity, conditions that can be approached but never, I would argue, be fully achieved. So the gridded landscape becomes a measuring device against which dispersal rates, toxicity levels, and threats to the human body are measured. And yet, looking down onto these sites of weapons testing, what I see is at times both beautiful and, and horrifying. And in the center of this image is that same Air Force target and grid structure that we saw previously. So you have this kind of ziggurat um, profile and its, and its shadow that are extremely legible against the desert floor. These are some installation images from a recent exhibit of this work uh, at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum uh, in Utah. And I'm printing them uh, directly onto aluminum in the dye sublimation process. And each element of the grid is 40 by 40 inches. So ultimately, the overall dimensions are roughly 10 by 10 feet. And the metallic prints have this kind of subtly uh, shimmering quality, almost like a graphite drawing. And uh, we worked really hard to echo this in the Proving Ground book. Um, and Virginia and I will t talk a little bit more about that. A few more spreads from the book. This is the South Ballistics Grid, a biological test grid and dispersal zone. So Dugway was established in um, 1942 during World War II as a testing environment for chemical weapons. And then biological warfare testing and evaluation began after that. During and after World War II, research car researchers carried out tests of mustard gas dispensed from various altitudes to evaluate different chemical agents. Planes dropped incendiary bombs on facsimile German and Japanese villages that had been constructed in painstaking detail at Dugway to enable the military to assess the most efficient way to destroy the real thing. So why does Dugway continue to exist in the present day? Well, for context, anthrax and sarin, ga sarin gas and other toxins have been historically weaponized by governments and terrorists alike. In 1995, a sarin attack by domestic terrorists on the Tokyo subway killed 12 people. And, of course, we know anthrax attacks by mail proliferated in the United States in the months after 9-11. More recently, the UN has found that sarin was used by, by pro-government forces in 2013 and 2014 in devastating attacks on, civilian, on uh, Syrian civilians near Damascus and Aleppo. So the idea of Dugway... Um, is to develop defense systems against such attacks. So I also became interested in the architecture and design of the labs at Dugway, which I see as expressing a kind of vision of hypermodernity, this kind of unbridled faith in the power of technology 
this particular facility is called WISLAT, which stands for the Whole System Live Agent Test Chamber. And uh, I was allowed to visit it because it wasn't yet live. Um, it went live just a few days after my making these pictures. So WISLAT, the structure, is designed to warn of the presence of an airborne deadly biological agent like anthrax or plague, other images from WISLAT. Um, and this is essentially like the inner sanctum, uh, the chamber where aerosols containing biohazards are introduced for detection and identification. So um, the idea is that not even a molecule of biological agent from WISLAT could, could get out into the atmosphere. But there's always human error, right? Uh, and in fact, in June of 2015, it was revealed that beginning in 2007, um, wasn't that WISLAT failed, but that humans failed. Uh, live anthrax samples were sent from Dugway without proper safeguards to commercial companies, academic institutions, and federal facilities for, for testing. Uh, and radiation that should have killed the anthrax did not destroy all the live spores, and equipment designed to test for live spores following irradiation failed. And worse, some of those labs that the anthrax were sent to didn't even have the proper equipment to handle live anthrax. So there was an investigation by the Pentagon, um, and it revealed that this anthrax had been shipped to 194 labs in all 50 states and nine foreign countries. And so there was a systemic lapse in the military's program uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary described the years-long incidents as, quote, a massive institutional failure. And then a final sequence of aerial images from Dugway. These are actually sourced from drone footage made for the military. We saw the video as you guys were coming in. Uh, these are stills from that video. And they show tests done with the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and uh, basically, they sponsored a series of atmospheric releases of what they call toxic inhalation hazard materials, uh, specifically in these tests, chlorine and ammonia. So here you're seeing the moment of a chlorine gas detonation. And these tests, which are collectively called the Jackrabbit Project, uh, which is perverse, um, I think, uh, began in 2010 and were conducted in order to determine the nation's vulnerability to um, TIHs, toxic inhalation hazard materials, materials being weaponized near urban areas. So in 2015, the test continued using only chlorine. That's what we're seeing here. And these were dubbed, dubbed Jackrabbit 2. And so there are now multiple releases of 10 tons of chlorine. A total of 100 tons of chlorine were detonated here, uh, simulating this kind of worst-case scenario. So not taken into account during the design of these tests is the capacity for these detonated toxins to, of course, drift into airspace of civilian communities, exposing those whom the tests are intended to protect. The simulated catastrophe is thus both a harbinger of future possibility and an introduction to it. Let's see if I can do that. Thank you. So... Hi, everyone, <laughs> and, um, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club's Marin Conversation Series. As both Bruce and David indicated, I'm Virginia Heckert, but who's Virginia Heckert, right? Um, and she's a curator. Well, she, I, am a curator um, at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, uh, where I've been for 14 years, and um, super... Uh, privileged to work with a number of historical figures in photography, but also contemporary figures, people as uh, erudite and well-spoken as David. And um, we've been talking about this conversation for um, a couple of weeks now, and I had the good fortune of having uh, heard David speak at Forest Lawn Memorial um, Museum about a month ago, where some photographs from his Oblivion series were on view. And he's just taken a whole lot of my questions and answers in his presentation. Ah. Just as well, there's plenty more material to speak about. Um, but I thought I would begin, um, and uh, yes, I do have to refer to notes here. Um, and my first question is with uh, something that you've just said, that for you, photography is a way of investigating the previously invisible or unknown. Um, and you alluded to the fact that photographing a Dugway um, proving ground was something that 
took you about 10 years to gain access to. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that process. I believe you said that you first found out um, about it in relation to the Thule. And uh, is that correct? Uh, uh, Tuella. 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 That's T-O-O-E-L-E. Yeah. Hard to <laughs> The locals, the locals Tuella. say Tuella. Um, <laughs> Um, testing ground nearby um, in 2004, but that it wasn't until about 10 years later that you gained access. Since these sites that you choose to photograph are hidden or unknown, how do you find out about them? How do you gain access? What's that like? What's your um, your patience level, your tolerance in terms of saying, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, or you might as well just give up? Those are great questions. because Dugway is a military setting, its airspace is restricted, uh, and civilians are generally not even allowed to visit on the ground. So I had to get permission, mm-hmm. if I were to be able to work there at all. To be honest, I never thought it would happen. It was a pipe dream. It was like, um, you know, I'd love to photograph on Mars. We've, we talked about, <laughs> like, maybe I'll get to the moon with we'll, another project. We'll, we'll tell a little but, bit about that in a second. But uh, I happen to be in conversation with a friend of mine in 2003 or four, and mentioned that I had been researching Dugway, ha- having been so stunned to learn of what was happening at Tooele and, and started to do some research into where those chemical weapons uh, came from that were being incinerated at Tooele. And to my surprise, he said, well, I think I might be able to help you if you'd like to get access to Dugway. Um, <laughs> as it turns out, uh, he does some kind of work <laughs> with the Pentagon. I'll never fully understand exactly what his role is there. But uh, he made an initial inquiry on, on my behalf in, I think, 2004. And the answer was, not now, which I thought was very encouraging. Um, it wasn't never. It wasn't never. <laughs> It wasn't never. So it was a much better, mm-hmm. uh, more open-ended response than I could have hoped for. And, uh, you know, it was under a Bush administration, and it was several years after 9-11, and I was actually really surprised at that kind of response. So periodically, um, John and I would check back in with each other, and in 2013, um, this book came out, uh, this Black Maps book. The subtitle is American Landscape and the Apocalyptic Sublime. (laughs) And uh, John said, oh, you have to send it to Richard Danzig, who um, had been Secretary of the Navy under Clinton and was now in a think tank in Washington. And he in turn said, oh, you have to send it to James Petro, uh, who is the, I'll get the title wrong, but he was essentially um, in charge of chemical and biological weapons at the Pentagon. And James Petro, I have never met in person, but he is um, a really open-minded human being. And he really understands the the need for us to take a kind of longer view of what our place is on the planet. And so... Well, I can't say that he embraced the idea of my working at Dugway. He was really, really open to it. Um, and I, he knew that I would be going in there if, if he could help me get access there as an artist, not as a photojournalist. I was not there to make them look bad. Um, and so with, with his encouragement, uh, the commander on site of Dugway uh, gave me permission to work there in 2014. And you mentioned both in your brief introduction, but also in the book on a number of occasions that you were surprised at actually how much access you were given when accompanied by a handler or a couple of handlers, and that there was one in particular, I think you name him Handler A, who really, along the lines of uh, Mr. Petro, really wanted to see your project succeed and and worked on your behalf to gain access to many of the sites. Right. Uh, Adam and um, oh, a there you Adam. go. A for Adam. Um, that's been one of the most uh, fulfilling aspects of this project for me was the respect 
with which I was met. Uh, and I, I, I just was shocked and stunned by it still, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, every site that I was going to, that I wanted to photograph was vetted. I was not given carte blanche. A number of sites I wanted to get to were rejected. Um, the, that stepped building that you saw was not on our itinerary. Um, but as we were traveling from point A to point B, I saw it and said, you know, can we stop? I really, I'm curious about this place. Well, to him, it was just a shed, right? Uh, and so to me, it was emblematic of something and it just sparked something in me that I, I, I just instinctively sort of dove toward it. And as he saw me working there, um, and he, you know, it's, it's empty. There's nothing in it. Um, so it's not like it held any dark secrets um, uh, at all. I, he came away from that, from watching me work there with this profound energy to assist mm-hmm. me um, because he saw that I wasn't there to make anyone look bad. Um, I was there to follow my own curiosity, really. Um, and he actually enabled me to get access to a number of sites that I wouldn't have he encouraged the commander to allow me to, to work in sites that I would not have otherwise been able to, to access. So, and that's the Air Force target grid building that you were talking about, the cigarette shape as well as the uh, shadow being so important for Air Force pilots to be able to view at super high speeds when they were flying past. Um, so some of the photographs that you took are on the ground and some are aerial. And one of the things that you have said is that the aerial view offers a fresh perspective that challenges our ability to comprehend spatial relationships but also that it's somewhere dialectically situated between science and art, rationality and imagination, abstraction and uh, embodied knowledge, visibility and invisibility, even the real and the fake and the true and the false. Um, How do you feel that your photographs um, integrate all of those different dichotomies um, Mm -hmm. in a way that um, gives space for a viewer who may not understand the specifics of what you're photographing to enter into the images and complete them, understand them. They may never understand them, Mm -hmm. actually. You know, I mean, there's a way that these pictures are um, not really forthcoming, right? They work on the level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And in fact, with, with, with Dugway, I'm titling things in a much more, much clearer way than I do in many other projects because I feel that the viewer really needs that information to have any grasp whatsoever on what it is that they're looking at. So say um, that project, that other project around the Great Salt Lake, Terminal mm-hmm. Mirage, an image would just have a number, Terminal Mirage 1, Terminal Mirage 2, whereas here I'm, I'm, I'm assisting the viewer to gain some entry into the space um, with a title but at the same time, I feel like I don't feel the need for the photographs to explain themselves. Mm-hmm. They're, they're of such complicated environments um, that, and they embody such complicated realities that maybe that's why the essays are... Uh, there are five essays in this book by different contributors and so they can offer a much deeper uh, unpacking of what the sites are about, what their history is, um, other things that have happened there than, than any photograph can. I well, think. And that's certainly true. I mean, one of the things that you did in your introduction was a deep breath. I mean, because some of this stuff is kind of scary um, to think about, to look at. Um, f- fascinating and horrifying at the same time. And that's also part of that dialectic is that you're attracted and repulsed. Um, but if, uh, one of the authors... Um, William Fox, in his essay, um, and this is where I also want to come back to that quote, uh, uh, the poem from, uh, by Mark Strand that lends the title to your black maps. Nothing will tell you where you are. Each moment is a place you've never been. And how this kind of adds to a sense of alienation and existential <laughs> dread that you're hoping that your photographs convey. I mean... How can they convey anything but that when you when you look at these pluming clouds of acid? Well, those aren't your photographs, actually. Mm. The acid green um, 
um, smoke, but also understanding that those uh, test sites are where those um, toxic chemicals and biological warfare uh, weapons are released. Um, That's that's really, as you mentioned, quite chilling. Mm. Um, And in fact, William Fox in the essay in the book refers first to uh, Dugway Proving Ground as a landscape, then a wastescape, and an alienscape. Mm -hmm. And so how do you think about this desert landscape in terms of all of that sort of existential dread, alienation. Um. There's something about working in the desert, actually. Um, and I was thinking about this recently because I've been working in the Atacama. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of my work actually takes place in one desert or another? I mean, even the oblivion work, like L.A. Yeah. is, you know, oh, it's not a desert. desert. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a garden. La La Land, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, without Owens Lake, it would be, it would be a desert. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, There's something about the way the desert feels um like it reveals structure you know um that i find really really interesting um i think that if i go way way back to when i first started making aerial images of my own not the work i made at st helens but Mm -hmm. the work i made following that there i was for the first two projects that were more or less back to back one was um looking at mining sites uh, through the Rocky Mountain states, and the other is looking at clear-cutting sites uh, of forests in Maine. And I knew consciously that that these were not documentary. This was not satisfying a documentary urge for me to to image only sites of environmental contest, but that they were mirrors, right? They were really like self-portraits. Mm-hmm. And so... <laughs> I'd, and, and I'd have to kind of go back in time to think of like who, who was that kid, you know, what was he about? But um, there is something that I feel is looking at human nature uh, in these images, the darker aspects of human nature, perhaps, that these sites are emblematic of some dark part of our drive as human beings, that we are wreaking this kind of destruction to our home uh, or you know that that's kind of the heart of it i think i don't know if i'm answering the well, question and, um, I, i'm not sure either if you're leading us to some other area because does that mean that was a very dark period for you a struggle for you um mm-hmm. and i i actually do want to get to another part of your identity in a way that some of these images of uh, dugway proving ground and other sites that you photographed reveal um something about yourself and you didn't mention that uh, in your introductory remarks, but um, you have said before that your training as an architect lends a lot of your aesthetic, uh, a, a lot to the approach that you take in terms of the aesthetics um, mm-hmm. of being interested in space and our relationship to space. Do you want to yeah. tell a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, actually, I think um, my training in architecture in a way, started really young. I, I was always interested in looking at things in plan and elevation and cross-section and studied um, drafting even in high school and axonometric drawings and literally the exploded view where you sort of see how things separate and, and it's very analytical. You're taking cuts through things and somehow all of that work kind of clicked into gear when I started working from an aerial perspective. And I felt like the aerial view was a way of analyzing space um, and that or that actually my working in space as you're moving through space each each frame each exposure is another analysis of space right well there, there's a couple of things that I want to respond to here and um, I may look because I wrote some questions but but also just intuitively. 
one of the things that your aerial perspective does is often eliminate the horizon and any sense of context as well as scale. So it you've said, you know, that viewers may not always understand the photographs. And I think you've also said that you don't even understand what you're photographing as you're photographing it. You might understand it afterwards. But how do you imagine that without that sense of context, without that sense of scale, that viewers are are closer to kind of understanding what they're looking at? I don't know if they are. <laughs> and I don't know if I need them to be. I don't know if that's my purpose or my job in a way. Yeah. Um, I want to make a compelling image that that stays with a viewer even when it's not in front of them anymore. Right. And in that way, like I'm interested in, in other visual arts. I'm interested in painting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, anything that is a visual, anything that has a kind of intensity and, a, yeah. and, and, and a, um, there was another word that it just, it just vanished. But that experience that's what I'm after, right? So I don't feel the need for these pictures to instruct, per yeah. se, yeah, or solve. Well, and in fact, one of the other authors um, of the essays here, um, and I believe that it is um, Katie the Coven, who is the executive director and chief curator of the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, um, which hosted the exhibition, she refers to the fact that the images um, or that your position could be viewed both as political and apolitical, mm. um, that it kind of straddles because you mm. introduce something but don't have a definitive statement about it. Mm. Part of what your contribution is is just making, as I've mentioned before, something that is previously invisible, visible, and giving us the opportunity to enter into a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I I mean, as you were saying, you know, that idea of both being political and apolitical, they certainly are political, and I kind of feel like there was a point where maybe I distanced myself from wanting to actually accept how political they really are. But you can't be concentrating on this type of subject matter for so many years without having a kind of deep um, need to address these issues, right? And um, I joke that the floor in my studio is concrete and it's stained and I could walk around and make pictures of it all day and it would look like some of my aerial (laughs) images, but there'd be no point. So there's actual real content to to the pictures. Um, but what I was recalling as you we were talking about political and apolitical is um, many, many years ago, uh, I was in a group show uh, that Robert Sobiesic organized mm-hmm. when he was at the Eastman House. Mm-hmm. And it came down to New York and it was a group. It was one of the very first group shows, I think, in photography that identified that photographers were beginning to address issues on the environment. And at that point, I was titling work differently. And so I was saying, you know, cyanide, leaching fields, open pit copper mine, Ray, Arizona. And I saw a couple move through the exhibit and read the wall labels. And the guy turned to the woman he was with and said, well, there's a bad multinational corporation or there's an evil multinational. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Right. And I know I'm guilty of the same thing, that you go to the wall label first (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I do it too. And I try not to do that um, because it's a crutch, yeah. right? But it also was me divulging information that then let the viewer, in a way, have a, a certain comfort level with thinking that they knew what the issues were. The issues are very complicated. I mean, I have an iPhone. I've been thinking about the, the, the Atacama work, which is looking at lithium mining, and the lithium mining right. is destroying the Atacama at an increasingly rapid pace uh, because lithium is used for our iPhone batteries and for our electric car batteries and things of like that. I'm as immersed in the contemporary world as the next person. So I, I'm not outside of it, right? And I'm very, very wary of just being the guy pointing mm-hmm. at the thing, saying look how bad that multinational corporation is. It's not that simple, right? So that is, I think, why I'd rather, I'd rather be guilty of complicating the issue 
or or straddling both sides yeah. of that, yeah. than being too um, um, didactic in the work. Yeah. Well, and I I I don't want to suggest at all this didactic uh, aspect because I think that's what's fascinating is that you kind of oscillate between these um, two aspects uh, in many different ways. Uh, documentary and formalism, realism and abstraction. But to get back to this idea of the political, um, one of the quotes that you have been known to refer to is from a Wim Benders essay in which you talk about the most political decision that one can make is where you direct people's eyes. Um, In other words, what you show people day in and day out is political. And so I'm wondering when you first realized that the where of these hidden and invisible sites that you tend to seek out or the where of the aerial view um, were inherently political. Mm. Did you have an aha moment or did you realize sort of after the fact that that's what you had been doing? I think I knew from the beginning that they were environmental, right? They were, they were, they were sites of environmental damage. How sites of environmental damage became political is is the history of the last 30, 40 years on this planet, right? And increasingly we see that environmental damage is a political issue. Um, At the time when I, say, was living in Maine and I would go to the the library, remember libraries, (laughs) and, and, and take out books and, and actually even like pamphlets that were talking about, um, that were basically community, um, written brochures to uh, try to raise public awareness about clear cutting Mm -hmm. issues in Northern Maine. It was very, very, very grassroots, uh, kind of information. It wasn't, it wasn't in the headlines ever anywhere, you know, in any newspaper. It was, it was material that had to be sought out. Um, so I knew it was environmental. Um, and even before that, uh, when I first started looking at open pit mines, I was really interested in Smithson's work and Robert Smithson's work. And he had, uh, that's the, the artist who did the spiral jetty piece that I showed earlier. He had developed a proposal for building a viewing platform in the base of an open pit mine uh, in in Utah, I think, in, in, in the Bingham Canyon mine in Utah. Uh, it was a proposal that was never built, but he made a collage that showed this viewing platform there. And the, the point of that, of that um, proposal was so that we could stand in that place and witness both geologic time and human time. In geologic time, the time that it took for these ores to amass in the site, and human time, the time that it took for us to take them out of the ground and build this 2,000 deep foot enormous pit. So I was really interested in that, and it, 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 um, I was then living in suburban New Jersey as an undergrad, and I was thinking, well, where are there mines around here? There's nothing that I could find that has this kind of scale. And I started looking at um, sand quarries on the banks of the Delaware River from above. And then started researching more and realizing there were coal mines in Pennsylvania. And so I worked my way a little bit westward. And I thought, uh, eventually, a couple of years later, uh, had a grant from the NEA. And I, I started researching mines really seriously. So... Um, they were inherently political, and I guess I sensed that. But for me, it was more like um, it was environmental, and it was it was it was also kind of an awareness that photography is immersed in these in these processes that use metals, that use water, yeah. that use paper, and so you know the first. 15 years of my doing this aerial work, I was sort of like dissecting the process of um, traditional um, uh, silver, black and white photography. Where do, where do we get these substances from? So. Well, and I think that's a, a really great place to spend some time talking about 
those aspects of photography in relationship to the book, um, Proving Ground, which was published last year by Radius Books. And you've, I mean, Bruce held it up. and Last month. It's 2020. January just came out. Well, I got an advanced copy. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> wow. Okay. January. January. Wow. Okay. 20th. So pro- published this year, hot <laughs> yeah. off the presses, yeah, literally. Exactly. Um, but as you'll notice, I mean, it's it's got some heft. It's got some substance. Um, but it does feel like it's also got a lot of metal, a lot of silver in it, mm. and that's because, as um, David was saying, with the um, photographs that you saw installation shots of um, at the uh, Nora Eccles Harrison Museum um, that they are printed on metal um, sheets of 40 by 40 inches each when put together on a grid are about 10 feet by 10 feet so scale has, uh, uh, is very important but you get a sense of that also um, ooh, and it does smell like it is hot off the presses mm-hmm. um, um, you've got the overview of the grid um, of nine images that depict one uh, test site. But then each element of that grid it has its own page. And they are – the page just feels so um, – I am reminded very much of the photographic process as if, if each page has been hand-coated with silver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about right. some of those decisions that you did make about um, the paper. Um, in fact, I wanted to ask you, the choice to print in black and white, I mean, not just the pages of the book, but the actual photographs, mm-hmm. um, to print on metal or on metallic paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that paper is very different than the pages of the essay, which are almost like essays, which are almost newsprint-like. Mm-hmm. But all of these decisions, I think, are, are super important. And I wonder to what extent they were a vision that you had or a vision that you um, worked through together with um, the publisher, Radius yeah. Books. Yeah. And if you want to hold it, yeah. you can. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm liking the heft yeah. of it right yeah, here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Whatever you like, um, if you want to show something yeah. specific in there. Um, it's a combination of um, ideas that I had and, and brought to the publisher and ideas that, that, that then he um, introduced as well. Um, I want to say about this book and this publisher in particular, Radius Books is a really unusual um, uh, and rare um, uh, kind of publisher and that they're a nonprofit. So I believe 300 copies of every book that they publish goes to right into underfunded public libraries. Really exceptional. Um, and it makes for um, a very specific um, way of working. So we fundraised uh, with the release of a limited edition print to support the production costs of the book. Um, there's still a few left, but most of them have sold through. It's, and I'm really gratified that, that I've had that kind of support um, from, from collectors of my work to acquire actually one of the, the stepped buildings, uh, the target grade building. But um, this, is, this was a really interesting process. Um, I had already been... Um, making these large prints on aluminum, as I, we discussed. But the, until I went to Santa Fe, uh, where Radius is based, and sat next to David Chickie, the publisher and amazing designer of Radius, all of these spreads were inset. And oh, you, so not so bleeding. They were not yeah. full bleeds. Mm-hmm. And in sitting next to him and looking at it on screen, mm-hmm. I said, you know, I have a really bad idea. I have a really bad idea. <laughs> but just, you know... And it, is the, it was the moment that the book really started to sing for me because this is an immersive, um, immersive kind of kaleidoscopic um, view that it almost echoes more than the, the large still photographs. So to me, it almost echoes the video piece that was playing. And we'll talk Vulcan. about that in a sec. <laughs> but um, so right out of the, even before... Um, Radius and I agreed to work on this together as we were just talking about it. I said, it's really important to me that we try to mimic these metallic prints, um, however that can be achieved. And so it, the, the printer that Radius uses for all their books is EBS, Editorial, Editoriale Bertolazzi Ste in Verona, and they're, they're, they're supremely 
gifted um, craftsmen when it, and, and have been at it for, for many decades. And so they made some tests and sent them uh, to me. I got them maybe a week before I was going over to Verona to go on press. And I knew that it would either succeed beautifully or fail miserably, and there was really no in-between. And even those initial tests were so sumptuous and so um, um, compelling and so rich that I knew we would be fine. Um, so other elements of the design, like printing the um, uh, texts on a different paper, mm -hmm. that's David Chickie. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's a really, really masterful designer. Um, this is one of those testing grids seen from the ground. So there was nothing that David wouldn't do in the design of this book to make it what I wanted it to be. Uh, there was not there was nothing that he. Well, wouldn't that just do. sounds like a miserable experience. No, it was nothing that, that he wouldn't that's do. What's... I can't <laughs> speak. No, really, I can't speak more. And then to have to him. go to Verona. And to have press. to go to Verona. Oh. It was just awful, awful, no. terrible, <laughs> terrible situation. No, I mean, um, it's it's so, truly yeah. a beautiful book, <laughs> yeah. and and yes. I mean, it does have that uh, new car smell right now. <laughs> it does. Um, a lot the, of ink the copy on I was looking at was an advanced copy, so that smell had worn off. But you really do feel like you're immersed in the book, and the essays add a tremendous amount at first I thought oh this is more information than I need and yet it, it was it, there's a, the word that you used I mean it was really chilling to think about what happens at this site um, over the years uh, now since 1942 whether it was World War Two or you know the 60s the cold 50s 60s Cold War 9-11 um, uh, um, oh, do, do you want to read that I'm going to let you read it <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about 1942, but okay. so here's this okay. poem by um, Quintus Smyrnaeus, who, um, gosh, he was a lyric poet, I think. So I'm not sure what century he was in, but it was like, you know, thousands, hundreds, mm -hmm. many, many hundreds of years ago. And it says, it's an excerpt uh, from the fall of, the, the fall of Troy. Um, a little above the earth rose up the dust. The breeze swept it aside, drifting away behind the men. There went a sound confused of voices with them, like the hum of bees that murmur round the hives, and multitudinous panting and the gasp of men hard breathing. So the idea of chemical weapons uh, being used in battle is centuries old. Oh, yeah. And that quote was um, provided by Chris Kalmeyer, who is um, a remarkable composer and musician who did the score for that video piece. And so it's really nice that, it, it, that his... Um, uh, creative um, process kind of entered into the book as well. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the video, which was before the detonation of the um, the chlorine gas. The chlorine gas, that acid green cloud. Um, the video is called Kaidoimus, um, and that comes from Sophos Kaidoimus, which means wisdom over the din of the battle which without wisdom is just din of the battle. So sort of... Hmm. Right. There wasn't a lot of wisdom. <laughs> There's not much wisdom. But it sequences 50,000 images. Are they all images that you took? Yes. Um, and are... They're not 50,000 uh, unique images. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Still frames. Still 50, frames. Mm -hmm. right. um, repeated um, and just... Split second long. Now, you talk here again about this interest in the dichotomy of it being both extremely brief um, and yet a sort of over an extended period of 30 minutes and then also being the overall effect of being at once meditative and threatening. Mm -hmm. um, and how did, how did you find that balance? How did, and was that you on your own? Or together with um, Chris Kalmeyer in, in working out the score? Um, Chris came into it, not late in the game, but Chris came into it at a point where the piece was already conceived. I had been using a placeholder piece of music. Um, but I also have to give a lot of credit to uh, an assistant who I was working with at the time, Chris Grunder, um, and... and uh, he and I were talking about what the experience of photographing from the air was like and whether or not the threatening aspects of that experience, especially being over these chemical weapons testing sites, 
whether or not enough of that um, intensity was contained in the still images, no matter how large they might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was thinking about sequencing things together. I had done something with sequencing images from another project of mine, the Lake Project, mm-hmm. that was very meditative and it was like the Ken Burns effect, like just kind of like slowly drifting <laughs> over an image. And I knew I wanted to do something at the polar opposite. Um, that staccato um, uh, aspect of things. Uh, gosh, who is the artist who did this incredible film that l- looped together um, images of the atomic blasts? Uh, I, I can't think of his name, but... That there was another piece that I had seen, and that that work was yeah, made. Yeah, the, the retrospective of yes. SF MoMA. Yes. Um, so that was in the back of my mind too. Who said it, Bruce? Bruce Connor. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Bruce Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had that piece in my mind as well. Um, it had to be so long that it it was exhausting, actually, and it is. It's thirty minutes long, and it's a it, it is it is. At, at, you know, certain ways mesmerizing, and in other ways, really just terribly intense and threatening. Well, and I, I like that word of exhaustion. I mean, because there's also something that I think becomes more apparent in the images as they flash by is that they're all sort of gashed and scarred. Really, mm-hmm. these kind of this you sense the physical damage to the landscape, mm-hmm. um, and. I want to tie together a few other ideas because I think we're about ready to head for questions. Um, and that is um, that you talk about photography sometimes as uh, the act of autopsy. Yeah. Autopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or a medium of autopsy because it's, um, a, it's essentially about extraction. But And you even give um, a definition of autopsy, which is literally, as you say, to see for yourself. However, Hmm. I looked it up on Google (laughs) and was led to the um, Merriam-Webster definition, (laughs) which says that uh, autopsy is an examination of a body after death to determine the cause of death or the character and extent of changes produced by disease. Hmm. And I think that that um, definition is equally uh, uh, applicable to the Dugway Proving Ground. It's like, what are these chemical and biological weapons that are being used? What kinds of um, untold powers and of destruction might they have and what kind of death might they lead to? And will we ever really be able to examine that? Um, this idea that many of the f- series that you've worked on um, exploring the American West, the landscapes of the American West, um, that in the end, whether it's primarily desert or other landscapes, they become sacrificial landscapes, mm-hmm. that they are sacrificed mm-hmm. um, for, the, for some other cause. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that before we open up to question this notion of death, destruction, um, isolation, alienation, (laughs) dread. (laughs) It's not all storm and dread here. Um, But um, do you see something hopeful coming out of work that could be viewed that way? Um, I mean, and fortunately, there is something uplifting in some of the images, maybe not not in this series, but for example, the Atacama Desert series, um, where there is this incredible beauty and this sort of this getting lost in um, the abstraction and the um, the scalelessness and the just the what seems to be a, an aspect of lasting forever as opposed to immediate destruction and disappearance. Mm. Yes, no. <laughs> yes, no. All right. Well, maybe. <laughs> Um, no, the idea of hopefulness is one that I would like to, these pictures to have as part of a greater kind of arc of the work. I don't know that any one of these pictures or even any one of these bodies of work is hopeful. But when I started making this work, no one talked about the environment. Zero. It had absolutely no 
There was no awareness of it. It was not taken seriously. It was like some throwback to the 60s, the, those you know hippie ecologist types. I mean, really, it was not... Um, it did not merit serious discussion. Now we might be fighting about, um, you know, <laughs> is global warming mm-hmm. a fact, right? Or is it, a f- you know, fake news, right? Well, we all know it's a fact, I think. Um, so I'm hopeful in the sense that um, where my work falls now is into a society that has already been, it's ar- we're already on track because we're thinking about these issues. We're mm-hmm. aware of these issues. You know, Al Gore started talking about these issues in the 90s. That was supposed to be the green decade. Instead, it was the decade of the Hummer, <laughs> right? And so now I think, um, you know, w- with climate change and the fires we've had in California, the fires we've had in Australia, um, the, uh, even the coronavirus, like we're, we're aware of um, the planet as something and our existence on the planet as something that's actually very fragile. So if we can have that conversation, then I'm hopeful that maybe we can actually address some of these issues and think about how, how we leave the planet, right? And, and what, what, the, what the potential for a better future might be. So it's not all, it's, yeah. you're right, it's not all sermon and drag, I hope. So. Well, thank you for your photographs encouraging us to engage in that conversation. And with that, I'm going to say let's open up for conversation with um, the audience. And David's got a lot more to say. So if you have a question, you'll you'll get an answer. Uh, David, I know there are a number of other artists, photographers and artists that are working with the landscape and thinking about climate change and environmental destruction. Um, I can think of a few, but I'd be curious to know um, if there are any other artists working in the same area that you've either collaborated with or that you um, find inspiration from. Hmm. Uh, Gosh, you know, I have a lot of respect for any artist that's addressing those issues, but I can't say I look to them for inspiration per se. Um, And I think that for me, the artists that I look to are maybe of a previous generation um, more than artists working, say, in the moment. Um, it is, it, it's been interesting to have um, this, this period, I would say, starting in maybe 2005, where there was this kind of rush of um, photographers st- suddenly addressing the environment. And I'm a little bit... I'm not wary of it, but I, I want to distance myself from it somewhat. Um, almost for me as a form of like self-preservation um, because it's, I, I'm, I'm very, maybe I'm like a little bit too much of a lone wolf in my work, but um, I feel like I don't want to be overly influenced by somebody who's working in the same arena as me. Um, that being said, um, I mentioned Robert Smithson. I'd mentioned, I would mention uh, the photographic work of Frederick Sommer and the photographic work of Louis Baltz. Um, I, you know, uh, those are um, two photographers who have who worked with uh, landscape and uh, in in the case of Sommer and and the built environment in terms of Louis Baltz. And their work um, has a profound um, effect on me. So I think that there are other artists. Um, who are not addressing environmental issues per se, but issues of landscape and nature, like um, uh, the painter Mary Weatherford, who is just phenomenal. And her work is absolutely just glorious and profound. I've known her for a really long time. And uh, we were studio mates in college. And her work um, is about the natural world and about abstraction together. And maybe that tells you something right there. Those are the things that interest me the most. Did you mention Emmett Gowan I at should. all? You, yeah. I <laughs> thank you. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, Emmett Gowan was my teacher at Princeton, and he's really the reason that I became a photographer. He's the reason I kind of um, uh, uh, had an excuse to not continue on my path in, uh, in architecture. And uh, as an undergraduate, 
I was very fortunate to go with him on this photographic expedition to Mount St. Helens, where he had been working already in the aftermath of the volcano. And that experience for me was, um, it was an introduction to working from the air, uh, although most of our work was done on the ground with, with view cameras. Um, we did work from the air. Um, it was also my introduction to looking at a landscape that was uh, uh, on, had been changed on such a biblical scale, but also looking at um, clear-cutting sites in the area of St. Helens, where the forestry industry was 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 operating with this force that was actually equally cataclysmic to the volcano, um, to the you know the natural disaster. So I came back from that experience. Um, thinking about all those things. Um, and that really helped set the course for a lot of my future work. But Emmett is, he has been a profound influence on my work from a really early age and stage. And, and he's also was a very, very generous teacher. So I definitely should be including Emmett there. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your presentation, both of you. It's been really interesting. I just wanted to know if you could talk about your choice of black and white. Mm. Yeah. Well, different series get treated differently. And they actually, um, I think over time, I've really come to understand how critical it is to either work in black and white or not. And even if I am working in black and white, how that gets deployed. So, um, for example, um, well, when I first started making work uh, in the mid-80s at Open Pit Mines, I was only working in black and white. And... It was the way I had been trained uh, as a photographer. It was what art photography was, right? And I loved working in the darkroom. I loved being a, a craftsman, a, a printmaker. That was really something that it's still really important to me. I still make all my own prints as much as I can. Um, but it occurred to me a couple of years after that project, when I was living in New York and I was looking at more contemporary art, that, I, that something was missing uh, from that work because it was in black and white. And what was missing was the, the the kind of luridness of the color of these sites that was actually so hideous and awful and ugly. And I had to let that in. I had to go out and make pictures that, that I might think were so revolting. And I learned a tremendous amount from that shift. Um, and accepting that into the process, that I couldn't make something that was just about this kind of refinement. It had to also let other things happen. So, but your question about whether it's color or black and white, black and white helps move things toward abstraction. Um, black and white in these images is actually specifically kind of referencing the new topographics photographers of the mid-70s who were, Louis Baltz was one of them, and it was kind of, this work is sort of in, in conversation with that. Yeah, the, the color would not inform these pictures, this particular project, right? I did shift to color for the interiors um, of that lab, right? Um, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's something that, that is really intentional, and it, 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 it's, a, it's gut instinct, but it's also kind of analytical. Okay, well, what is this project really going to be about? Well, I'm going to jump in here as we uh, wrap up the evening. Uh, <laughs> David, you've done an amazing job of making environmental destruction look beautiful. Thank you. I think uh, the photos were terrific. Uh, Virginia, thank you from co for coming all the way up here from the Getty to lead a really powerful conversation. And uh, the book is available. We have copies in the back. David, I believe you're represented by the Haynes Gallery in San Francisco. Yes. So if you want to go see his work, it's just off Union Square on Geary Street, I believe. Right. Uh, so you go to Union Square, have a nice cappuccino, go to the gallery, <laughs> see his work. Thank you both for coming tonight. It's been a special evening. Thank you. Thanks to the audience. Uh, if, if, if you do purchase a book, as I will be doing, David will be sticking around to sign that. And I think you both can be around for a few minutes. David, is many of you know from Mill Valley, I think his wife Lynn's here as well. So uh, thank you uh, for being part of Mill Valley. Yeah, thank have you. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you, Virginia.